This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. For one night only, a coup here at Navarra Media. The gentle social democrat Michael Walker is out. My name is Barnaby Rain. Later, I'll be joined by my favorite person, Annie Ololoku Tariba. Welcome to Navarra Live. Coming up later, a damning report has landed about shocking events at a UK immigration center. The situation in Libya after the country was hit by catastrophic flooding and an announcement from the Metropolitan Police, which hints at the extent of the problems with the force. First, though, we return to the story everyone's talking about. Russell Brand is most well known for his comedy and Hollywood careers, but he also now has 6.6 million subscribers on YouTube, where he talks about wellness, conspiracies, and anti-establishment politics. Following the serious allegations of sexual assault and rape made against him, YouTube has now taken action. The platform has blocked him from making any money from advertising. It's likely a big financial hit for Brand. Some estimates put his YouTube advertising revenue at anything up to £800,000 a year. Sounds nice. We'd like that at Navara. Explaining the decision, a YouTube spokesperson said this. If a creator's off-platform behavior harms our users, employees, or ecosystem, we take action to protect the community. This decision applies to all channels that may be owned or operated by Russell Brand. Now, Brand's videos are still available on YouTube, but other platforms have removed his content, with the BBC taking down a few episodes of shows and podcasts featuring Brand from iPlayer. A BBC spokesperson said this about the decision. We've reviewed that content and made a considered decision to remove some of it, having assessed that it now falls below public expectations. The BBC was, of course, implicated in the allegations against Brand. One of his alleged victims was just 16 at the time she says she was sexually assaulted by Brand, who was then the host of a BBC radio show. She also says that Brand sent a BBC car to pick her up from school, taking her out of classes and back to his home. So I think that's probably what falls below public expectations. Channel 4 was also implicated. There are allegations that complaints made to Big Brother production staff were not acted on. Now, that channel has removed Brand's content too. Brand has strongly denied all the allegations made against him. But questions are now rightly being asked about what was known in comedy and media circles about the allegations against Brand. Last year, comedian Catherine Ryan was interviewed by Louis Theroux for the BBC. Here's part of that conversation. You were in the papers recently for saying that there was a, a predator, was that the term, that you, you had worked with and that you'd informed the employers that he was a predator, right? I didn't inform employers, I informed him to his oh, face him. that he was a predator. When we say predator, what do you mean? I mean, I think I mean uh, perpetrator of sexual assault. But it is very dangerous for us to have this conversation. Why? I'm happy to have it. Why? But it is a litigious minefield because lots of people have tried to nail this person down for their alleged crimes. And this person has very good lawyers. So am I going to put my mortgage on the line by saying who this person is or like 
entering into any conversations like that, we've seen what happens to people who, who talk about alleged predators. I mean, it's not really my story to tell. No one has perpetrated any sexual assaults against me, but this person, I believe very strongly, so do a lot of people believe very strongly is an open secret, is a perpetrator of sexual assault. And I am in front of loads of people in the format of the show, said to this person's face that they were a predator. You said it on the show, Lots not backstage. No. Again and again. But... but did, they, did they keep that in the episode? No. No. Which is fine. It's fine. I still got paid and I still did my job, but I did it in my way that I felt was fair. This is what we talk about. This is what female comics and probably actresses and women in my industry talk about all the time because that's the safest way for us to talk about it. I didn't tell any employer or blow a whistle or do anything at all. I handled it, for lack of a better term, like a man mm -hmm. and said it to his face. Did you get some criticism for that? I got criticism for not naming who it was after the fact when I spoke about the original show, yes. Is there a chance that um, the allegations are not well-sourced and that it would be irresponsible on that level? No. Because they're too credible? Yeah, they're really credible. But also, uh, every time these things are eventually proven, and you look at Bill Cosby and you look at Harvey Weinstein and you look at the unmentionable British personality. Mm -hmm. Everybody knew. And they go, well, everybody knew. I'll say Jimmy Savile. <laughs> I'll yeah. be the one who says it. You know him best. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I mean, I didn't mean to cause like a stir about it. No. I just do, I say things as they are. Now, Catherine Ryan doesn't say that she's talking about Russell Brand there. But in 2018, Brand was booked to star as a panelist on Comedy Central's Roast Battle. And Brand was going to serve as a judge alongside Catherine Ryan and Jimmy Carr. Deadline now reports that Brand was dropped at the end of the first series after Ryan repeatedly called him a sexual predator on camera. According to the Deadline report, multiple sources have confirmed that Brand is the comic that Catherine Ryan is talking about. And that Roast Battle was the show she made the claims on. So her comments were made in the context of a comedy roast, meaning she was supposed to make outrageous comments about Brand for laughs. The comments were also made on camera, but none of them were aired. Now, if that's true, you have Catherine Ryan being criticized now for not publicly naming Brand. But what about the much more powerful executives at Comedy Central who apparently failed to take Ryan's claims seriously? Comedy Central is owned by the international conglomerate Paramount. A spokesperson for the studio said, We are not currently aware of any reports of misconduct having been raised with MTV or Comedy Central. But if any are brought forward, they will be investigated. The welfare of all those working on or contributing to our shows is our highest priority. And today we have robust duty of care procedures in place on all programs produced for us, including confidential whistleblowing lines. Ryan may not have used the, quote, confidential whistleblowing lines, but not only did she allegedly make the accusations on camera, studio executives actively decided to cut them out. 
Here's Russell Brand talking about his experience on Roast Battle and apparently confirming that he was the one who demanded Ryan's claims be cut. I've done this uh, TV show, right, like last month. It's coming. It's going to be on TV in January on Comedy Central called Comedy Roast, right? Jimmy Carr hosts it. Oh, it's a yeah. female comic called... Uh, Catherine Ryan on there as well and it's like people come on two comics and have a row with each other oh like a battle like a roast battle in fact that's the name of the show comedy roast battle oh, okay alright and like I thought oh, right. I'm, and I was maybe one of the judges I thought it'd be like Strictly Come Dancing and I'd be like Craig Revel Hallwood i just make a sort of a wry a sly little remark at the yeah, end and your timing was off your clothes were rubbish perfect exactly exactly that's what I was anticipating instead of which mate I was hauled into this cyclone of condemnation <laughs> People are like, mate, the Katy Perry jokes here. All sorts of, I'm like, well, I'm not doing this. Right? Like, I've not paid any attention to what it was because, like, my agent was integral and in putting it together, looks after Jimmy as well. I go, oh, yeah, all right, I'll do it. Sounds like a laugh. Why not? Right? Like, a couple of days' work, no problem. It was absolute nonsense. I called up, like, after, like, day one of it, I was like, I was, like did a whitey. I was like someone that had been through like a deep trauma. It was like living in a nightmare. What it, what it felt like, Noel, is that I'd licensed people to say the rudest and worst things they could possibly say to me. And because like in that situation, you know, with Jimmy, there's one or two things you can say to Jimmy Carr. You'll know the sort of like news stories. Once you've pedaled through that, then you're left with me, like some great jabber the hut of controversy to throw knives at. I, like after night one, I goes, I need to go there. The armed tomorrow I called up Matthew I goes Matt I've agreed to do this thing I don't like it it's been so horrible to me Brand was dropped for the second series of the show because of an allegation uh, because of an investigation into sexual assault no a source close to the show told Deadline this contract negotiations were made as tricky as possible is the best way to put it in the end it came down to the fact that it seemed like Russell didn't have a good sense of humour he didn't feel he was fair game. Louis Theroux's interview wasn't the only time Ryan may have spoken about Brand. In this discussion with fellow comic Sarah Pascoe, she explains the personal risks of publicly accusing powerful predators. Like the thing that happened with BAFTA, like, yeah. oh, yeah, I mean, if you don't want to go on the record, if it's not a police issue, like, so complicated. Oh my God. I've done a show with someone who I and you believe is a predator. Yeah. But I mean, like, what am I supposed to do? I thought about that. I yeah. was like, what do I not do it? Yeah. But it's such a messy thing because, like, I don't have proof. Oh, yeah, What absolutely. am I supposed to not feed my children because someone else? Yeah, also sometimes, you know, especially in that instance that you're referencing, it was about raising it rather than... I raised it. Yeah, exactly. So I got Ultimate I, Predator yes. 2 is facing in front of everyone every day. Well, where's he? Hiding. Ooh. Hiding. I wonder if it's too late to get him on the show. <laughs> Finally on this... I want to feature someone else who's had an interaction with Russell Brand. Earlier today, I spoke to friend of the show and journalist, Joanna Romero, who interviewed Russell Brand when he first became involved in social movements in the 2010s. His behavior towards me in particular, obviously that being the first-hand experience, um, was just sort of a little bit odd in, in the sense that I, I thought for a man of his profile, public profile, he was very, um, let's say, inappropriately or unprofessionally tactile. He would, you know, I would be doing this, these interviews for um, my employer at the time, which was the Morning Star, which is the daily newspaper on the left. Um, and I would have my little recorder or my little microphone on me. And so I would hold about, I don't know, like um, a couple of feet 
uh, distance from from him as I held uh, the microphone in front, as you, I'm sure, are you know, sort of knowledgeable of the position that journalists usually take. And he would, by way of bringing the recorder or the microphone closer to him, also, first of all, hold my hand, because that's how I was holding the recorder, but also sort of put his hand on my shoulder or almost on my neck sort of thing to bring me closer to him. Now, he's a very tall man, um, so I guess he would argue that he's just trying to make sure that the microphone is close enough to his mouth um, for him to be heard. But it, it got to a point in which certainly it was certainly unnecessary for him to be that close to either the microphone or certainly to me. And I had to always have this sort of like distancing myself physically from um, said the microphone, the recorder and him in order to feel a little bit more comfortable. Now, that in and of itself perhaps would not be necessarily a massive problem and might have been uncomfortable or uh, annoying perhaps as a journalist. But I happen to have heard firsthand some let's say, stories of his philandering and perhaps not the best behavior as far as uh, dating etiquette would, was concerned when I was in uni, actually, in my um, first year of uni uh, with a woman who obviously I, I won't name. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was this sort of strange recollection that kept ringing in my the back of my brain, you know, this man that I heard all these quite negative stories about really um especially when the woman at the time in question, just like myself, I mean, this was my first year of uni, was in her, I'm guessing, 19, 20, perhaps uh, years of age, whilst Russell Brand at that point would have been in his early 30s. Um, so, yeah, so it's that sort of thing in which you keep hearing stories, then these events happen to you where nothing necessarily fully inappropriate or abusive happens, but that le leaves you with a sort of lingering ill feeling. Um and yeah, so in a sense, and this is, was mind-boggling to me, given that I had and have never had any connections to the world of entertainment or comedy. Um, and even so, um, as a Londoner, I, I had had first-hand access, so to speak, to, to these rumours that we now are finding out had been going around for more than a decade. What lessons do you take from that about the culture of um, news and entertainment um, that you knew these stories, you had an encounter with him in which he didn't make you feel comfortable. Um, and that was just kind of something that people knew and nothing was ever done about it. How do you think we should think about that fact? Well, really what it makes me think about beyond this particular case, i.e. beyond Russell Brand himself and his very brief occasional encounters with me in a professional setting is the amount of times in which similar occasions have happened um, in which I was even perhaps the target, the I wouldn't say necessarily victim because thankfully I've never been a victim of assault or, or abuse, but you know, in which I was the target of attempts of as much. Um, and in which I, as well as obviously the people around me, dismissed it, um, shrugged it off, and by doing so, potentially enabled, humoured the continuation of this behaviour. And to go even further, and this is something that certainly is particularly uh, um, appropriate to the last few months, the amount of times in which we have dismissed people's quite inappropriate opinions 
on this very matter, and I'll, I'll give you a concrete example, when the Rubiales uh, kissing scandal on the Women's Football World Cup uh, happened at the final ceremony, um, and there was that non-consensual kiss uh, delivered in a very public event, um, I heard plenty of people, men and women alike, say things like, well, you know, maybe it was in the spirit of a moment, the emotion, um, when it really would be completely inappropriate in any other setting of the like, especially if the A genders were reversed, or alternatively, it was even two men. So it really brings back the uh, notion that this is about power, that this is about us collectively as a society, dismissing situations or shrugging it off when a man is behaving dodgily and appropriately perhaps at times to the point of actual, the alleged crimes that Russell Brand has committed um, based on our assumptions of, oh, you know, it was just a spurt of the moment. It was emotive. It was, in Russell Brand's case, very often this notion that he just has a kooky personality. Um, and really makes me question how many times I've been uh, enabling bad to potentially criminal behavior um, and how many times I can henceforth uh, prevent that, really. Now, some of our viewers might be thinking, why are you joining in with this coordinated assault from mainstream media. But I think it's important to stress here that the real conspiracy is the cover-up, is the fact that Russell Brand for years was talked about, joked about, whispered about, sometimes shouted about. And senior people in the entertainment industry and sometimes in news too, just thought he was too important to do anything about it. So the story here isn't just about Russell Brand, one man, and whatever reason, there's a exposure now. The story is about a wider culture. And there's an irony there. The irony is that Russell Brand once was all about standing up for the powerless against the powerful. There was that brief moment when he bested Jeremy Paxman and then he went on Question Time and told Nigel Farage that we should support immigrants and not bankers and that Nigel Farage was a fake populist. These days, though, he entertains COVID conspiracy theories. He talks to Tucker Carlson, who calls himself a populist but hangs out with billionaires. He talks to Ron DeSantis, a former torturer for the American state at Guantanamo Bay. This is the kind of politics that people sometimes get into after a bit of time spent on the left, where they think it's easier to identify a few small conspiracies than massive structural hierarchies. And so it's no surprise that people into that kind of politics can easily believe that the conspiracy is to attack a powerful man rather than thinking the real problem is powerful men and the ways they can abuse others. Joining me now for the rest of the show as we discuss issues from all over the world is, I'm delighted to say, Annie Ololoku Tariba. Annie, how are you doing? And are you ready to cause some trouble? Hey, I'm excited for today. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm very well. I, I feel better for having you with me on the show now. Let's get started with a warning that the next story includes graphic descriptions of abuse and discussions of self-harm and suicide, and also very strong language. For the first time ever, a public inquiry has reported on conditions inside an immigration removal center, and the details are horrific they found 19 instances that they say may constitute torture. That is a violation of Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights. The immigration center in question is Brook House near Gatwick Airport. 
Migrants can currently be held there without trial and with no time limit until they're deported. They can be held forever. After five years of work, Inquiry Chair Kate Eaves gave her final report this morning. The most serious incident involved the application of pressure to a detained man's neck while he was in extreme distress. Other incidents included the repeated use of an inherently dangerous restraint technique, which has previously been associated with the death of a detained man, Jimmy Mabenga, in 2010. There were instances of men being forcibly moved when they were naked or near naked. Force was used inappropriately, sometimes on people who were harming themselves. Unnecessary pain was inflicted on men during use of force incidents. Humiliating remarks were made towards men who were self-harming or being treated for a medical emergency. Segregation was used inappropriately and there were occasions where threatening or derogatory language was used towards men who were extremely vulnerable. In one incident, there was a failure to adequately respond to a detained man who had been found with a ligature around his neck. I also saw evidence of physical violence by staff against detained people. Eves went into further detail about some of those abuses. I've seen concerning evidence of dangerous techniques being used, techniques that can lead to serious injury or death, of force being used to provoke or punish detained people, of force being used not as a last resort. There were multiple occasions where staff talked about past violence or future intentions to use violence against detained people. I was alarmed by how desensitised many staff appeared to be towards the vulnerabilities of the men being detained. Dehumanising language was not uncommon, including the repeated use of the mocking phrase, if he dies, he dies. As you heard there, the report found that one officer put his hands around the throat of a suicidal prisoner in Brookhouse. That officer whispered this, you fucking piece of shit, I'm going to put you to fucking sleep. There were several witnesses, but none of the other officers did anything. One officer then told others this was a model incident of how they should behave. The restraint trainer in the prison told officers to use racist language and, quote, fuck up prisoners. When one prisoner tried to kill himself by swallowing batteries, a manager said, if he wants to suck batteries, plug him up like a Duracell bunny. There were countless more incidents like this. The only reason that we know about them is one of the officers secretly filmed inside Brook House. And BBC Panorama showed that footage in 2017. That's why we've got this whole inquiry now. Brook House was then run by a private company, G4S, who were accused of lying about staffing to, to increase their profits. The Home Office refused to strip G4S of the contract when the Panorama show aired, instead fining them under £3,000 out of their annual Brookhouse profits of £2 million. An inquiry by the National Audit Office in 2019 found 84 incidents of concern. And here's something else from that 2019 report. Inappropriate use of force or verbal abuse of detainees are not counted as a performance failure under the contract. Now, the Home Office has said all of this was just a few bad apples. But Inquiry Chair Kate Eaves rejected that. Here's Diane Taylor reporting in The Guardian. The Inquiry report will come as a blow for the Home Office and G4S. 
Eves rejected the narrative put forward by both during the inquiry that the practices exposed were primarily the result of the behavior of a small minority of G4S staff. And the inquiry also criticized Serco, the company that took over from G4S. In fact, in recent days, documents have been leaked from another immigration removal center at Harmonsworth near Heathrow Airport. Open Democracy report this. An attempted mass suicide took place at the UK's largest immigration removal center during a protest days after a detainee died, according to internal documents that charities say expose extreme levels of distress in detention. Kate Eaves noted in her report that the use of force is not even currently described as a last resort in guidelines for these so-called removal centers. She recommended a 28-day limit on detention. Currently, no limit. The Home Office have not yet responded to that, but they have said this. The abuse that took place at Brookhouse in 2017 was unacceptable. The government has made significant improvements since then to uphold the welfare and dignity of those detained, including strengthening safeguards, promoting a culture of transparency, and improving the oversight of contractors' performance. We remain committed to ensuring safety and security in all immigration removal centers, and to learn lessons from Brooke House to ensure these events never happen again. We thank the chair and inquiry team for their report and are carefully considering every recommendation. The government are currently planning a tenfold increase in immigration detention, especially for those seeking asylum, that is, people asking for protection from various forms of harm where they come from. This has been going on for decades, right? Um, and if anybody has spoken to somebody who has experienced immigration detention, the story is not dissimilar to what's happening in immigration detention centers across the country. Now, a few things are really important to draw out here. So the first is that essentially we have a broader climate in which the biggest word or easiest word to use in these circumstances, scapegoat of the immigrant, has really come to the forefront. On the one hand, the government's happy to fork out profits of $2 million to run Brookhouse. On the other hand, the government says that money for public service has to come from somewhere and hikes up fees for visa applications. Essentially, immigrants have become, in British society, the biggest cash cow at the same time as being the biggest scapegoat for the lack of government resources. I'd really be interested to see the amount of money the British government makes every year from visa applications. So that's the first thing. Now... The degree of uh, numbness, the degree of uh, 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 callousness in the way that these officers were willing to refer to detainees in the way that they were willing to treat them, whilst not being surprising, is still deeply saddening, right? Um, and I think that we've, we've, we're, we're approaching a certain kind of Rubicon in British society in which we really have to start asking ourselves the question of who we are as a society. It was not long ago when we were having the big debate about Rwanda, right, and carting immigrants off to the African continent, especially asylum seekers, um, in which the present um, in which Suella Braverman, I remember at Conservative Party conference, talked about how she um, dreams of the day when the first plane lands with the asylum seekers, right? And at the time, our fear was that most of the stuff that had come out in this in this inquiry would happen elsewhere, except it's happening on British shore, it's happening just by our airports, it's happening in our communities. Um, and I think that's something that we really, really have to take stock of, but also something that we have to challenge. And 
it's quite it's quite frightening to see this kind of rise in xenophobic sentiment um, at the same time as companies like G4S and Circa continue to profit dramatically from some of the worst scenarios. Now, I also think it's important to talk about how this intersects, right? So on the one hand, um, we're talking about the broader social trends, about the scapegoating of migrants, especially the scapegoating of asylum seekers in a country where back in 2017, like remember the refugee crisis where everybody recommitted themselves to um, having a humane approach to refugees and asylum seekers, right? But then on the other hand, let's talk about the impact of cuts. Companies like G4S want to squeeze as much profit as they possibly can out of um, out of contracts like this. And what does that mean? You get situations where, like, like was described um, in the inquiry, even aside from the blatant racism and the callous disregard for the sanctity of human life and human dignity, you also have people who are stretched, who don't have... Um, in, uh, who have far too much on their plate, who are understaffed to deal with the complex issues that people might have, which drive them to move um, over to the UK, right? And so you have a toxic cocktail. And I think from multiple angles, this needs to be addressed. And I'm, I mean, I'm not hopeful that much is going to happen under a conservative government. We can try to shame them, but I think you can't really at this point shame the shameless. Um, I think that the conservative government has decided to take the stance of if you... If you can't shame us, we'll just, uh, sorry, if we just plow ahead then and people, despite criticism, can, if we continue to do as we've been doing before, then people forget eventually. And that's the problem is that people forget. You know, it's, it's people don't follow up, people don't protest, people don't get on the streets. And I don't really have much hope for how we move forward from here. I agree. I think this story is a kind of microcosm of a very violent society in London. The money is made. In London, MI6 officers plot the coups and generals prepare the bombs and corporate chief executives plan the resource stripping and the pollution that all destabilize places all over the world. And then just a few miles away on the outside of London next to an airport, people whose only crime is fleeing that devastation that makes so much money and protects so much power for a few people in the fancy bars and restaurants of London, people whose only crime is seeking sanctuary, those people have to be made invisible. Those people have to be seen as vermin, have to be confined to prisons, where the British state, which lectures others about human rights, tortures them. That's what this report has found. Violations of Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights torture inhuman and degrading treatment the state that talks about its noble values all over the world, bombs and destroys places, and then when people flee, it treats them as less than human. Those are the words, less than human, those are the words of Emma Ginn, who works for Medical Justice, one of the charities that goes into immigration detention centers. And she said, we are not confident that the Home Office views those in detention as fully human. So just think about that. And if you care about a politics that celebrates human dignity, take on the rich and the powerful and defend those who seek a better life and safety and security. Mainstream media in Britain isn't meant to keep us informed. It isn't about relaying facts or providing useful context. More often than not, it exists to serve the rich and the powerful. But we say, fuck that. You funders, listeners like you who have chosen to back independent, truthful, media. If you can, 
please consider donating one hour's wage per month or whatever you can afford at navaramedia.com forward slash support. We couldn't do this without you, so thank you. Moving on now. Catastrophic floods in Libya have caused mass casualties and thousands of deaths. And while aid has begun to arrive in the most heavily hit east of the country, the military-backed government of eastern Libya has begun expelling journalists from the region. Now, they say it's because journalists' presence is hindering rescue efforts. But there are also reports of eastern Libya's government shutting down the internet and mobile networks. The government's media expulsions came after large protests rocked the devastated city of Derna. Residents blamed the region's leaders for the disaster, which saw the city all but flattened by floodwater, and they're demanding an independent inquiry into how it was allowed to happen. This story is a complicated one. It involves the creation of a failed state by Western imperial intervention and a civil war that, fa- that filled the political vacuum left behind. It's also a story about climate change and its devastating effects on the world's poorest regions. Libya was hit by catastrophic rainfall when Storm Daniel traveled across the Mediterranean from southern Europe, intensifying along the way before striking Libya's northeastern regions. Some parts of the country saw more than 16 inches of rain in just 24 hours, causing extensive flooding. That was then exaggerated by the collapse of the two dams along the Wadi Derna River. The dams situated south of the port city of Derna, burst when overwhelming rainfall filled the southernmost dam beyond capacity. The water that was released then broke the second dam on the city's outskirts. The impact was enormous. When the dams broke, water with a weight of around 1.5 million tons rushed towards the sea and through Derna. Around a quarter of the city was swept away, with entire neighborhoods washed into the sea. The UN says 4,000 have been confirmed to have died, with a further 10,000 still missing. The country's death toll is now feared to be as high as 20,000, with at least 30,000 people displaced. It's Libya's worst natural disaster for 40 years, but just how natural was it? Climate scientists have attributed the severity of Storm Daniel to climate change. The storm is what's known as a medicaid, essentially a Mediterranean tropical storm. They're relatively rare. They only occur a few times a year, but they're getting stronger. Professor Liz Stevens of Reading University said this, Climate change is thought to be increasing the intensity of the strongest medicaids, and we are confident that climate change is supercharging the rainfall associated with such storms. So man-made climate breakdown may have caused the severity of the storm, but it was man-made political disorder that amplified its tragic effects. In 2011, a NATO-backed uprising in Libya led to the overthrow of longtime dictator Muammar al-Gaddafi. It led to the deaths of 3,500 civilians and created a political vacuum that saw the country split by nearly a decade of civil wars between factional militias. Since 2014, there's been no unified government in the country, with the western and eastern regions now ruled by warring administrations. The government of national unity in the western city of Tripoli is internationally recognized, but the eastern government, based in Tobruk, is not. It's backed by this man, Libyan national army leader Khalifa Haftar, who maintains military dominance in eastern Libya. 
So the resulting political stalemate has left Libya unprepared for disaster, and recovery from a decade of discord has been slow. The hard-struck city of Derna was the center of a standoff between Islamic State forces and Haftar's army in 2017 that left the city in ruins, but promised reconstruction funds were never forthcoming. Likewise, the Wadi Derna were neglected for years. Regular maintenance has reportedly not been carried out since Gaddafi's overthrow. Anas Elgomati is the founder of the Tripoli-based think tank, the Sadiq Institute. He told Vox this, all of us are affected. The city was destroyed by climate change, that I can accept. But the people that un are under the rubble today are there because of man's evil. There is no other way to describe it. It's the negligence of men that are unappointed authoritarians that have been in charge of that place for the last several years. They've rotted that city from the inside out. I can't get my head around the negligence. It's not just negligence. Someone who bears a fair amount of responsibility for causing the conditions of that negligence is the former US President Barack Obama, who oversaw NATO's intervention in the country. It led directly to the killing of former leader Muammar al-Gaddafi and 13 years of political violence and instability. Obama later described failing to plan for the aftermath of that intervention as, I quote, the worst mistake of my presidency. Just a line, I made a bad mistake and thousands and thousands of people suffer. Obama's now posted this helpful advice on Twitter. If you're looking to help people impacted by the floods in Libya, check out these organizations providing relief. That's the Obama Foundation, uh, allegedly helping everyone in Libya. No word yet though from Obama's former Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton. This was her reaction in 2011, when she was asked about Gaddafi and about NATO's Libyan adventure. We came. We saw, he died. <laughs> did it have anything to do with your visit? No, I'll, I'm sure it did. Annie, do you think it's right to describe this, as much of the media are, as a natural disaster? I think that you have on the African continent some of the most intense consequences of human uh, mismanagement, of uh, political, um, uh, of like undermined political stability, of Western imperialism. Encapsulated in a continent which is at the forefront of climate disaster, and this pattern um, has consequences, and those consequences aren't just in Libya, but they're stretching across the region, especially across the West African region. So, a few things I wanted to draw out. I think the first thing is to say that um, it's it's kind of very easy to talk about it in terms of climate um, and the impact of climate change or climate disaster, on the strength of storms, on the, the severity of weather conditions. And in Europe, that looks like hotter summers, but people still die of heat stroke. On the African continent, that means all of the different extremes of, of, uh, of, of the environment. At the same time, I think that the sad part about this is that what it's like unlikely to lead to is a serious conversation about how as a globe, especially as the global north, we take accountability for the impact of widespread, unlimited consumption on the rest of the world. And I think that's one dynamic that's important. The second dynamic, I think, is the dynamic, obviously, of NATO's intervention in Libya, in which you have the destabilization of a country with zero plan for what happens afterwards, because just like with asylum seekers in Britain, and just like with um, um, 
just like with asylum seekers in Britain, just like with any other minority group, workers at Rana Plaza, these people in the global south just aren't considered to be human to the same degree as the global north. And so it's absolutely fine to destabilize a country and leave it to ruins and watch on as people kind of collapse. And what then happens at the end of it, like you perfectly encapsulated with Obama's tweet, is they come in and talk to us about charity and they come in and tell us to save the people. But in reality, what these are are political problems which require political solutions. Now, I want to draw your attention because it's like Europe and the Global North wants to make this mistake again. If you remember a few months back, there was a coup in Niger, just above Nigeria. Um, and immediately afterwards, you know, the... the presidency in Nigeria is um, at, the, at, at present, obviously, get finding its feet on in, t- on in terms of the international stage. But you got calls directly to the president from Kamala Harris, uh, Harris talking about how they would be perfectly happy to support military intervention. You get a really kind of hawkish stance. And um, Timbu comes out and talks about how he is, what is standing between Niger and the gates of hell. What does that tell us? It tells us that the impetus is still from the global north to continue to sow seeds um, of destabilization on the African continent. But also it tells us that we have to have really serious conversations about what it would mean to develop an anti-imperialist stance, right? Um, And I think what, if anything, the lesson of Libya teaches us is that it's not sufficient to just say West bad, right? Because part of this problem, part of the human catastrophe caused by political actions has been the completely um, corrupted um, uh, governance, right? And the the fact that um, public services, the fact that essentials have essentially been run into the ground by um, political leaders who are only interested in accumulating capital and accumulating wealth for themselves. That tells us that the enemies aren't just in the global north, but the enemies are also within. So what does it mean? to not just present anything which is from Africa as if it's revolutionary, at the same time as also opposing Western imperialism and opposing the impetus for the West to intervene and create disasters and chaos, which essentially then become the ladders from which these uh, corrupt leaders spring. So lots of food for thought here. And it's um, it's sad because, you know, many, many years ago, a few decades ago, people talked about aid fatigue. People talked about... Um, People talked about poverty pornography, right? And essentially that's 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 where we're at again. You know, we talk um, and talk and talk about how horrible the things that happen on the continent are, but we don't get tough about developing the kind of political framework and outlook which would support us to, um, or which would help us to uh, enable Africans and empower Africans to talk for themselves and to take political action themselves. I want to see more action on the forefront in these issues from the African Union, from ECOWAS and uh, let's stop looking to NATO and the West uh, to help us both in terms of aid, but also to help us um, in terms of our political stability. Develop our poli- uh, we need to develop our democratic institutions so that people can actually achieve the dividends. And you have countries who are willing to invest the money to prepare for crises like this. Agreed, 100%. Though we also, I know you won't disagree with this, should be clear about the hypocrisy of uh, oh, the God, of course. liberal democratic West. Haftar the uh, military leader in eastern Libya, is not internationally recognized. But in May, Georgia Maloney, Italy's prime minister, met him. And then in June, 250 migrants are seized on a boat 
by Haftar's forces and return to Libya in violation of international law. So the European Union and its member states will happily uh, use the militias that, uh, that develop after the brutality and the chaos and the anarchy of a bombing campaign. They'll then use those militias to carry out their dirty work, to violate international law in ways that they can't themselves do. Um, uh, until it was closed down recently, uh, there, were, there were secret prisons that were found in Libya that the EU was helping to fund where people were trafficked, uh, uh, including people being trafficked into sex slavery, the so-called Libyan Coast Guard is actually a body funded by the European Union uh, to do the work of pulling back migrants that it doesn't want in Europe. So the enemies that Annie was talking about, global north and south, are often so thoroughly and brutally imbricated with one another, complicit with one another. We move on. The reputation of the Metropolitan Police couldn't be much worse. Earlier this year, YouGov found that half of all Londoners say they don't trust the force. But we've now got another statistic that hints at the scale of the problem with the Met. What if I told you the force has taken one in every 34 officers off duty or restricted their duties to protect public safety? That's right. Even the police admit they have worries about a thousand officers. That's the size of a small police force itself. 80% of these officers are on restricted duty. So we just don't know what they're accused of and if they're still on the streets. 275 officers are awaiting hearings, and a large proportion of those involve violence against women and girls. Deputy Assistant Commissioner Stuart Cundy has confirmed that some of those cases involve rape. All of this follows the high-profile cases of Wayne Cousins, the serving Met officer who raped and murdered Sarah Everard, and David Carrick, one of Britain's most prolific sexual offenders, while he was a serving police officer. Those cases made a lot of news. So the police dismissed 100 officers in a year, a 66% increase. The police even admitted to identifying 1,600 cases of officers accused of domestic or sexual violence where no action was taken. 1,600 cases they found. If this sounds to you like the police sitting on a culture of abuse and rushing to look like they're acting when it gets exposed, listen to this. Last year, the state's official Casey review found the police to be institutionally racist, sexist, homophobic, and corrupt. Those aren't my words. They're the words of an inquiry uh, uh, supported by the state. Casey pinpointed one uh, elite Met unit with a thousand officers. And Sky report this. Baroness Casey also said the Met's Parliamentary and Diplomatic Protection Command, in which Cousins and Carrick both served, those are two Met rapists, was a, quote, dark corner of the Met and should be disbanded. That's Casey's official recommendation. The police have not followed that recommendation so far. And most of the officers in that unit, which Casey described as a dark corner, are armed. What happens when police officers are investigated? First, they're investigated internally, and then by the so-called Independent Office of Police Conduct, the IOPC. At the last count, 40% of its staff were former police officers. Guess how many complaints of police discrimination they upheld back in 2020? Just 2%. In 2021, a parliamentary inquiry called the IOPC, quote, too complacent on matters of race. I know it well, the British ruling class has this way of talking about things too complacent on matters of race when they're not taking action about racist police. Meanwhile, 
On the same day that we hear the Met admitting a thousand uh, of its officers are suspended or on restricted duty, this news breaks. Met police officer faces sack after tasering 10-year-old girl in South London. A misconduct hearing is being held for PC Jonathan Broadhead, who is accused of twice deploying his taser at the child's home. Less than a week ago, there was this. Remember the case of Child Q, a 15-year-old black girl strip-searched on her period with no adult present except the police officers who surrounded and searched her. Met police admit overusing powers to strip-search children after IOPC inquiry. Three officers face accusations of gross misconduct over intimate search of teenager at Hackney School in 2020. So they're admitting that they've been overusing those powers to strip-search children. It's 25 years since the McPherson report found the Met to be institutionally racist. And all that seems to have changed in 25 years is the addition of institutional sexism and homophobia and corruption to the list. Here's what the Met have said. The harder we work, the more effort, the more energy we put into identifying those who shouldn't be in policing and doing everything we can in the regulations and the law as it stands, the more difficult cases, the more difficult stories will become public, and rightly so. Annie, the police are telling us that the reason we're hearing bad things about them is just because they're being so kind as to tell us now. What do you make of that defense? You take a section of society who wants to police boundary people, manage be people's behavior in the interest of stability rather than justice. You chuck them in, throw a handful of them some weapons, the rest of them get tasers and batons to beat people with, and then you expect a different outcome. It's quite shocking, really. It's really quite shocking. And I think that, you know, for the for a very long time, the Met and also other police forces have essentially treated telling the public about their actions as if it's a favor to us. It's not a favor to us because the police are supposed to serve insofar as in a capitalist society, it seems that we require one. The police are so, supposed to serve the interests of the people and are in service to the people, not the other way around. And um, I find it really interesting because I think you know, you and I both know part of my uh, politicization involved being in um, campaigns around uh, the right to protest, campaigns around the relationship of the police to critique not just of the police, but also of the state, right? And it's no surprise then that the kind of culture which is imbibed in a, an institution like the police is in instinctively hostile to um instinctively hostile to people questioning them. I'll add a couple of things in here. So the first is this. Um, I think that we really, you know, at this point, the, the, the degree to which like the news cycle is just things we knew before, but now they're willing to say it is like quite shocking, right? Um, and I think that anybody who lives in an inner city area could tell you all of these things about the behavior of the police, about the overuse of powers, about the um, harassment they face um, at the hands of the police without even having to blink, without having to read a single one of these articles. And I remember I'm always struck by that line from the race report um, that we got uh I think it was the year before last, where they said the Metropolitan Police um, acknowledged that there was a racial disparity in stop and searches, but couldn't possibly think of the reason why that existed. Um, and that's really the level of analysis that we're given by the police. It tells us that they don't respect us. Um, they don't take us seriously at all. The second thing and a really concerning thing here is the degree to which the institution of the police empowers people to abuse, right? 
acknowledging that they overuse powers to strip search children. I mean, we do have to have a really serious conversation about, first of all, what we consider to be assault. That is a form of assault, especially towards children. But um, I think also, furthermore, that the fact that these things seem to pass with a, a simple bit of outrage initially and then it gets buried in an inquiry, I think um, I'm at a point, maybe you can tell, where it's like follow-up, right? Um, and I think that first and foremost, stop and search we know has not an effective means of policing, is not effective at identifying people who are committing crimes. A very tiny proportion of people who are stopped and searched or searched on school premises actually have done quote unquote, anything wrong. But for some reason, it seems to be the single institution in British society that regardless of all the data that comes out against its usage, people just don't care. And finally, the use of police officers in and around schools in home settings really needs to be addressed. You have, um, you have uh, uh, increasingly, rather than where you have in schools, lower um, lower paid, overstretched teachers who aren't able to manage classrooms, who don't necessarily have the experience because there's such a high turnover of teachers due to how grueling the environment is, couple this with home environments in which people are getting poorer and poorer and poorer and which poverty oftentimes breeds other socioeconomic indicators, what you then find is that that gap, and this is something that abolitionists have been saying for so long, that that gap between what society is supposed to do to deliver dignity and justice to people and what society is currently doing to deliver dignity and justice to people is always filled in with the police and the prison, right? And um, the fact that, first of all, most of these uh, most of these uh, ex um, most of these dynamics or experiences are racialized, and furthermore, that most of these dynamics and experiences are the well wielding. It seems to be the theme of the show of powers by the powerful against the powerless, the cover up of powers used by the powerful against the powerless, the abuse of power against the powerless. It seems that Britain is a society which is rotten to the core, and if the people who we're told are supposed to be the moral arbiters of our society, the people who work in the police force who are supposed to tell us all what to do, um, aren't able to live up to the standard that we expect of ourselves, then what hope do we have as a society? Annie, you've been brilliant. Thank you so much. You and I both know that the hope that we have lies in NHS workers on strike today, in migrants who cross oceans in search of a life of freedom, in those who are harassed by the police and stand up to them and senior Met commanders and Charles Windsor and Rishi Sunak are not fit to uh, kiss the feet of, um, of uh, migrants in detention and workers on strike and uh, people who stand up to the police. Hope comes from people who believe in freedom and who take on concentrated power. Annie, thank you so much for joining me tonight. It's been so lovely having you with me. Um, and before you go, I want to uh, read you a super chat we've had. Uh, with uh, someone sending us £10, Nino Baggins, who says, Barnaby, Annie, you're, I promise you I didn't, I didn't plant this. Barnaby, Annie, you're both brilliant. This show has been super hard to watch because of the topics, but you both have delivered eloquently and passionately. Thank you, Navara Media. So thank you to Nino, and please keep those comments and chats coming in. I'm sorry we didn't have time for more of them tonight because we had so much to cover. Thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. Michael Walker will be back tomorrow from 6pm. This little coup will be swiftly defeated. For now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.